Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. We have finally come to the end of this election cycle. It was way too long, and it was mostly terrible. And we're probably kidding ourselves that everything's going to be fine just because it's over. But let's end it anyway. At this point, you probably want to know what's going to happen in a few days' time. In all likelihood, you've been looking to polling experts for certainty. Well, one of our in-house polling experts is here to help. So keep calm, look at the polling aggregate, and remember that there is always a margin of error. Meanwhile, you have probably been wondering just what is going on over at the FBI ever since its director, James Comey, announced that the agency was pursuing a new and not totally clear angle on the Clinton email scandal, despite longstanding bureau traditions of keeping the hell out of the way of electoral politics. Former Justice Department official Matt Miller is here to discuss Comey's decision to politicize the FBI by injecting the agency into our lives at this very late date. It's not all 2016 on this podcast, thank God. The Washington Post's Alyssa Rosenberg has published a fantastic and fun study on the relationship between the entertainment industry and the police. It's a fascinating look at the way pop culture and real police intertwine, shaping both Hollywood storytelling and law enforcement policy. We are fortunate enough to have Rosenberg here to talk about her ambitious project and what we can all learn from it. And finally, yes, it's our last podcast before the election. The next time you hear from us, the world will have changed. We will have our final thoughts on the path we took to get here and what the future might look like. And we'll offer our best prediction about how this will all turn out. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Ariel Edwards-Levy, and Ryan Riley. Let us take a deep breath and get on with it. Welcome to So That Happened, a podcast. We are here at the end of the 2016 election. Can't tell you how happy I am. Can't tell you how sorry I am. Can't tell you what's going to happen next. But my name is Jason Lincolns. I'm the editor of Eat the Press of the Huffington Post. And I'm joined by, as always, our friends, Zach Carter. Hi, everybody. Arthur Delaney. Hi. You feeling calm? I'm feeling very calm. Really? Yeah, I'm feeling really like sort of the most zen like I think I've felt for the for the last two years, politically speaking. Wow, that's impressive. Arthur, do you feel calm? Yes, I'm fortunate. Nothing about the election triggers me personally. Uh, It's it's busy (laughs) at work, and uh, we we have a great forecast on what's going to happen, and it looks like. Trumpism is going to go down, and that's good. We will have um, <coughs> HuffPost pollsters Ariel Edwards-Levy up very shortly to talk about that and about polling methodology. Um, but I wanted to just sort of like sit and like sort of do our like exit interview on the election. And it's been a really interesting election for a lot of reasons, not just because we've had a mad wanker like literally 
performing bigoted diarrhea on a daily basis on America's <laughs> on America's cable news networks. Bigoted um, diarrhea is the worst diarrhea. Uh, like what? Um, what? What? What's What's the key takeaway that what you've learned about American politics during this time? Uh, for me, I, I think um, it, there was there was a pretty good. Uh, a metaphor that somebody on Twitter put up, I, I can't remember who they were, but they said the election is sort of like the new phones that are coming out. You know, the new iPhone doesn't have a headphone jack. The new Samsung Galaxy literally explodes in your pocket. Um, they, it, it's, but it's not, you know, I don't think it's just that we have uh, a couple of bad choices uh, for president or, or let's say uh, imperfect choices. I, I, I think there's a real rot at the heart of our democracy. And even though I do not think Donald Trump is going to become the next president of the United States, um, I think the fact that he built like a pretty impressive movement, uh, impressive in terms of just like sheer size and enthusiasm around, uh, you know, a lot of essentially white nationalist um, race baiting, anti-Semitism, all, you know, all the, the nasty sort of semi-fascist things that he did throughout the campaign um, spells trouble for us going forward. And it's not something that's just going to go away after the election. And I also think the Democratic Party um, is in a much more precarious situation than it has been acknowledged uh, generally throughout this process. I think the the new sort of alliance of the party increasingly looks like upper class white people, professional class white people, and then brown people. And the key to holding that coalition together in the face of this sort of rising tide of white nationalism is going to be making sure that the working class brown people stay in the coalition. If they leave the coalition or become unenthusiastic and don't don't continue to participate in it, um, then you get a real problem for American politics. And the Democratic Party hasn't focused on those issues. They haven't made them a priority for several years now. Um, and I, I think I think the primary for Hillary Clinton was a real wake-up call. I, I don't think she's stupid. I think she she got that, you know, she, she had her cage rattled pretty seriously by the Bernie Sanders primary. Um, and she knows that they, the Democrats have got to find a way to deliver results for these people. Um, whether that can actually be done, you know, we're, we're going to see. Yeah. Arthur? Yeah, I think it's going to be very dangerous for one party to be just affiliated with at this ethnic nationalism. Like, that, that's a horrible problem. And the Trump campaign exposed something that probably a lot of people suspected was going on all along when there was talk of, well, this Republican TV ad bashing welfare is a racial dog whistle. And at the time, our our politics and our media was too polite to, to go really hard on that message. But now we've had a campaign with full-blown, uh, unhidden white nationalism. David Duke... Uh, coming out and say, vote for me and Trump, and using the, the terms of the alt-right openly in a debate and on Twitter. And so this is, in a good way, this has been exposed for what it is. Uh, in a bad way, I, I think it's been made worse, and it's not going to go away after Trump loses. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I, I, I completely agree with the precariousness of where we find ourselves right now. These are some old institutions that seem really creaky. The whole point of the way we elect presidents was supposed to portend against someone like Donald Trump coming to power in the first place. Um, and, you know, it's been sort of a war on elites for like a long, long time. And we come to find out here at the last minute that elites, like them or not, did serve a noble purpose. And it was to keep the dragons in the sea where they belong and not out on stage with us. Um, it's an interesting thing to think about Hillary Clinton potentially becoming president because she is remembered mostly for the middle of the road Clintonism 
that defined her husband's uh, presidency. And the Democratic Party from the mid seventies onward. Yeah, really. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's maybe a little bit unfair to completely tar her with that, but I think that middle of the road Clintonism as a solution to America's problems is done and dusted. It's over. Going back to that playbook would be a disastrous thing for her to do in office. I think she has to look ahead at the coalition you're talking about. She should look ahead at some of these electoral mess we've all been joking about. But if you look at the way millennials vote um, right now, they're in the Democrats column, Democrats column. And right now they're very they're poised at the ragged edge of the economy and need something to uh, keep them afloat and alive and well. And Hillary Clinton has to, like, look to the fu- some kind of future casting right now. And I'm thinking about um, Michael Brennan Doherty, who writes for The Week, had a really good piece out talking about how this was the election that, like, completely forgot about the future. Mm. You know, it was about two imperfect candidates, one of whom was a mad fascist, reckless douchebag, and the other a frequently untrustworthy Democrat. Uh, we didn't hear a lot of policy ideas. We didn't hear a lot about what the country should look like in four years. We don't have much in terms of like, what's the national mission we're going on together. Even Bill Clinton said, we're going to build a bridge to the 21st century. Some of these things are metaphoric, but they still implant an idea of propulsion, of pro- progress in people's minds. The new um, freedom, the great society, right. the new deal, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, I think that like knocking off a, autocrat is a noble goal but once you've done that there's still a lot of pieces to be picked up and i don't know where we go from there yeah and i think particularly you know if if we uh, unless you know democrats just have an unbelievable night on tuesday it's it's very you know it's very likely that republicans are going to control the house of representatives afterwards and we've seen that you know when when you've had a democratic president and a democratic senate and a republican house the republican house can shut everything down um so the ability to actually deliver the goods through Washington institutions. Um, and I, and I, I really have to emphasize, I think delivering the goods is what needs to happen. It can't, the Democrats won't be able to rely on rhetoric and being able to just point at Republicans and saying, say, look how terrible these people are. Because people just don't vote when they don't feel like they're actually yeah. getting something I mean, out of the process. Maybe they don't get anything done because it's but, so hard to plunge into the breach time and time again and lose votes. But, but go lose the votes. Oh, just, but remember, you know, there are all sorts of things you can do with personnel from the executive branch. I mean, Tom Perez, who's the labor secretary for, for Barack Obama, just went around searching for like old weird laws he could do something with. And he found one on overtime and was able to say, okay, we can write a new regulation and expand overtime pay for millions of people by just writing a new rule based on this old law that everybody forgotten about. Timothy Geithner, who was treasury secretary under Barack Obama, implemented a you know foreclosure relief program that was basically a big scam on homeowners that was designed to help big banks. Um, you know, you can do things for working people um, with the executive branch. And so a lot, I think a lot hinges on who Hillary Clinton ends up appointing to these these key positions. Might be getting a little ahead, though, because there's been this uh, meme for a long time that we have so many days until everything will be normal and the election will be over. We'll have a, a restoration of sanity. But all the while, Donald Trump has not said that he would accept the results of the election. Yeah, that's right. So so everyone's looking forward to Tuesday, but Tuesday could just be the beginning of a whole new type of disaster. It's true. It's even if Hillary Clinton wins big, a weird post-election electoral crisis is probably the least good option here. Um, 
maybe I'm being wrong about that, but it feels to me like it would be a bad option. Coupled with a lame duck session in Congress, which is going to be very controversial no matter what happens. Because of TPP votes. Yeah, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which essentially everybody at the top of the political class has decided they don't want to have anything to do with right now during the election. We're going to see if they want to do something with it once the election's over. Republicans might want to rush that Merrick Garland nomination back into consideration, too. (laughs) The, um, you know, the... uh, (laughs) It's, I guess it's time for us to, like, just predict. What do we think is going to happen? Arthur, we'll start with you. Election night. Big Clinton win. Big Clinton win? Yeah. And, and Trump problem. And then Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Succinctly said. I think that's right. I think Democrats will narrowly take the uh, the Senate. They will not take the House. Uh, and we will have... Uh, we, will have <laughs> we will forget about this nightmare briefly, and then we will be on to the next one. Uh, I think that... Probably the Democrats will miss taking the Senate, and j- by Ooh. just a bit, just a bit. Um, the worst case scenario would be miss taking the Senate, but you're stuck with Evan By. That's like literally the worst thing that could possibly happen. So, <laughs> so that's what I'll predict. I'll predict that the Democrats will miss taking the Senate, but be stuck with Evan By for six years. Uh, I think Clinton will win. I think the electoral count will be something more like two ninety two, not something in the three hundreds. But mm, small but, win. But she'll win. And can I just say a good argument can be made for a, a Clinton win without a sense of a mandate because then Clinton would have to go looking outside herself and her coterie and her insiders to find the coalition to keep what she wants to do, what her agenda is together. So don't look at a lack of a mandate as a bad thing necessarily. So thank you guys for hanging with us for this last, these last two years of total chaos and misery. Yeah. It's going to be great. Not talking about this election instead talking about all the shit that we're never going to talk about this election. Are we? Oh, well, It was a beautiful dream. All right. Uh, We will be right back with more on this election, but it's good stuff. Uh, Ariel Edwards-Levy, our uh, pollster guru goddess, will be here to talk about polling methodology, and it'll be kind of exciting. And then then we'll never hear from her again. (laughs) So (laughs) we'll be right back. (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter. Uh, we've got an interesting segment here. We don't have Jason Lincolns. We don't have Arthur Delaney. We have a guy you might have heard of, Ryan Riley, our criminal justice reporter is here. Hello. And we have Matt Miller, former chief spokesperson for the Department of Justice, joins us as well. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about Jim Comey, um, the elephant FBI director in the room. Um, 
don't think don't, he's technically so, registered as a Republican anymore, but that's... And he's actually, yeah, <laughs> he's actually more like a giraffe. He's six foot seven. <laughs> that's pretty tall. I, uh, he's very tall. Yeah, I've always been kind of uncomfortable around people who are taller than I am. I'm, I'm like moderately tall, but not that tall. Um, so, and I'm pretty sure I'd be uncomfortable around uh, Jim Comey these days. Um, he has recently become Me like too. the most unpopular person uh, among Democrats other than like Vladimir Putin um, for deciding to tell lawmakers that uh, and the public um, that they have uh, got some new emails here. That's basically all he said. Uh, but that's caused all sorts of problems for uh, the presidential election for Hillary Clinton. Um, Matt, you've been very critical of this move. Um, but just basically, I mean, what is the problem with transparency, for, especially from an organization like the FBI that is historically not terribly transparent? That, that is a great question. It's one of the things that people outside the government and outside the FBI or the Justice Department don't understand is that, you know, transparency is always great. Sunlight is a disinfectant. In a lot of cases, it's true. But in criminal investigations, transparency is kind of the worst thing you can imagine to protect the rights of people who often are innocent. You know, when the government goes around investigating someone, they you, they will hear the worst things about that person. Uh, it doesn't mean they're true. You know, they'll talk to to potential witnesses who have, may have biases. They'll turn up pieces of information that look to be incriminating, but then in, in context are not. So the government does it in secret because the idea is at the end of the day, they'll take all of the information on both sides um, and present if there is a, a potential crime. And it's another you know point present a case to someone else who gets to decide a judge or a jury. It's not even like the FBI get mm. to decide who's a criminal. They get to they get to make they with the Department of Justice get to bring charges. So there's this fundamental bedrock principle of our criminal justice system, the federal criminal justice system, that the Justice Department just doesn't comment about investigations when they're ongoing because that unfairly tarnishes the reputation of people being investigated. And that's not just Hillary Clinton. That's any investigation. That is the standard operating practice has been for years. A Republican and, former prosecutor put this to me in a way that I thought was really interesting, which is basically put up or shut up to simplify it. If you know, if you have enough to bring charges, you bring charges. But if you don't, you don't say anything. And that's sort of a, a principle, I think, that a lot of people feel that Comey violated, you know, initially in, in July when he sort of did this very unusual announcement and um, sort of rolling out the decision that uh, they were not going to bring charges, but still sort of condemning um, Clinton's behavior in this situation. Now, a, a lot of people who have been, uh, I don't, there haven't been that many people outright defending Comey, but people who have, have said, well, it's not as bad as it, as it looks to other people have, have argued that once he made that move in July to give a, a big press conference, FBI directors just don't usually give press conferences, period, but certainly not about investigations where they're not bringing charges. Once he did that, he really had no choice but to update Congress on the status of, of the investigation when new evidence came to light. Um, what do you make of that, Matt? I, I find that to be, that argument to be, um, it's, it's almost impossible to conceive. It's like saying, you know, you're sitting at a bar in two in the morning, you've had 12 drinks, you're completely drunk, well, I might as well just keep drinking. You know, you, you <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you should stop and step away from the bar. He made a really bad mistake in, in giving that press conference. And it did lead him into these other mistakes. It led him into then giving detail to Congress that, that they don't usually do, both do in his testimony and in turning over records. And I think it's part of the reason why he came forward and did what he did Friday. But, you know, it, it, first of all, just because he he broke the rules in July doesn't mean he should have broken the rules again now. And And on top of that, broken an additional rule, which is... You don't release information this close to an election uh, when it when it involves a public official. Um, it, it's it, it's kind of a, a hard argument for for me to understand. I think you know you hear a lot of people say, well, he'd have been damned if he do does, damned if he doesn't. He's going to get mm -hmm. criticized either way. 
you know, the rules are there for a reason. And people always criticize, you know, people often will criticize the outcomes of investigations. They don't like the fact that somebody got charged with a crime or they don't like the fact that somebody didn't get charged mm-hmm. with a crime. And you're used to that. You get, but, you know, you let the, the facts kind of stand for themselves. On a process decision like this, if you're going to get criticized one way or the other, stick with the rules, stick with the precedent, and then you'll be on safe ground. Well, now, why, why are those the rules, though? I mean, we are talking about the electoral process. Um, shouldn't the public know if people are, are being, are, are the subject of investigation, even if there's a, you know, a very big asterisk that's very clear that this is, this is not the same thing as being, you know, indicted? The problem is, it's very hard to make that asterisk actually clear to people. The rules are, are, are the rules exist the way they do, because people, you know, that while the justice system gives you a presumption of innocent all the way up until you're convicted by a jury, the public doesn't often. The public hears that you're being investigated and that they they assume that something's wrong. It's just the natural way mm-hmm. that people interpret things. And so if someone has not been, you know, even been indicted um, to to raise, and I should back up and say, the government typically won't bring indictments against a public official in the last, last 60 days before the election. And that's when they're sure that someone, you know, in the government's mind, they're mm-hmm. sure you're a criminal. They're, they're so sure they're going to bring charges against you in court. Cash they, in the freezer. That, that's right. Stuff, they, yeah. won't, they won't bring those charges because they think it unfairly, you know, it could tip election. They'll wait. And if you get reelected, they'll bring charges against you then. And we could figure it out after. Um, but um, to, 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 you know, even short of indictment, and there, there's never going to be indictment in this case, to just release the fact that they're investigating with no information about what's involved is really, really a violation. Yeah, I think that was one of the difficulties also because, I mean, the the way he it was sort of unveiled was just left so much uh, to be desired in terms of the details or contextualizing what exactly was happening. I mean, there's a very strong possibility that this is, has absolutely zero relevance of it to anything um, mm-hmm. ultimately in the end. and. You know. But you've seen a lot of stories that have popped out in the press since this happened. I mean, the Wall Street Journal is now sort of seems like the place for disgruntled FBI <laughs> employees who want to charge Hillary Clinton with something to go to leak stuff. You saw the uh, Eamon Javers piece in CNBC about uh, about Comey himself uh, allegedly saying that uh, you know he didn't want to talk about about a, uh, an investigation into Russia's ties to the election uh, because it might tip the election in some way. Um, you know. <laughs> If the FBI has become this sort of sieve, essentially, for, for leaks right now, uh, I mean, does does Comey have an obligation to go out and talk to people if, he, if he's worried his own rank and file are going to go out and do it, you know, without his blessing? No, he should stop his rank and file from leaking, <laughs> is, is the honest answer to that. And that seems glib. I mean, you can't always prevent people from leaking. But I will tell you, you know, having been on the inside, when you're in a situation like this and you really don't want something to leak the thing to do is not to expand the number of people that have access to it. There's no reason why they needed to proceed full steam with this investigation right now. There's no urgency to it. There's no public safety threat. There's no chance they were going to be able to wrap it up before the invest- before the election in any event. So the, the right course of action would be to say, so we think there might be some more emails. You know, we're worried about it leaking. It's 11 days. From, the election is 11 days from now. We're going to just be quiet about this. We're not going to take any steps. We're not going to expand the, peop- the circle of people that know internally. And then we'll wait and see after the election. And that, that is not an unprecedented thing. Oftentimes, you know, I talked about not bringing in indictments before the election. 
if they are investigating a public official, they oftentimes won't send subpoenas until after the election because they're afraid that those would leak. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way you control. There are ways to kind of you can't pr- totally prevent leaks, but you can you can try to tamp down on them a little bit. And that's what I think they should have done. There are management strategies available. Well, uh, speaking of managers, you know, Ryan, the FBI director does not get does not just sort of fall out of the sky onto a golden throne where he gets to live forever. Um, you know, he answers at least to some degree to the attorney general and to the president. I mean, are, are there steps that uh, that that Attorney General Lynch or President Obama could take to to rein in Comey here? I mean, there are, but I don't necessarily think they would ever pursue any of them, right? Because they got to think of the political. I mean, you could they could basically you know call him in and try to rein him in a bit, but. Hmm. That's probably just not unlikely to happen given the makeup of Congress and because of how bad I think that would look for the administration if they were seen as cracking down on someone who went rogue or, you know, presents himself as an independent um, sort of guy. I mean, that's, you know, Comey's entire reputation, which I think is is really a large component of this, is he sees himself as this very, you know, independent-minded prosecutor. You know, it happened, you know, during um, the Bush administration, and I think he probably sees this as a continuation of Mm-hmm. of that today, that, you know, he doesn't, that he de- he decides on something and, you know, he decides what's right and what's ethical and that's the way it, it sort of goes. And, you know, you know if, if he needs to butt heads with some people, so be it. I, I think that's probably a, a big component of this overall. So, Matt, uh, the Washington Post has done some reporting here, making very clear that um, Comey discussed this with uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch. Um, she urged him not to do it, um, not to go public with this. Um, why... Why wasn't that the final word? Why is the FBI director? How does the chain of command work here, where he's allowed to just go do something the AG told him not to do? This is this is such a hard question. the The FBI director reports to the Attorney General, and she is his boss. She can direct him to do things. But the FBI director also, you know, is supposed to have a bit of independence. A lot of this is typically done by custom and by understanding. It's not a, a, a clear rule in place. And when it works well. And I'll give you an example of when it worked well was with Eric Holder and Bob Mueller, who had a lot of really touchy situations. You know, they work they work it out together. And the FBI director ultimately understands that, you know, while I'm independent, I'll, I'll listen to my boss and do what my boss says up to the point that I think it's, you know, if they're ordering me to do something unethical or illegal, and then I'll, you know, I obviously would would you know either not follow through or threaten to resign. Mm-hmm. Um, but the situation with Comey is so difficult when you know, when your boss tells you that I think what you're doing is a violation of the rules, that ought to be enough. She shouldn't have to give you mm-hmm. a direct order at that point not to do it because, you know, it, from her standpoint, if she gave him that direct order, you know, he's got a couple of things he can do. One, he might follow it and leak that mm-hmm. he was ordered to do that. Um, two, he might disobey it, in which case you have a real crisis inside the Department of Justice when you have an FBI director who's refusing to obey it, a, a, an attorney general. It's a real problem. Um, and three, he could have threatened to resign over it. In which case, you know, I think that would be a complete overreaction uh, in, in something like this. Um, uh, but, you know, it, it's not out of the realm of, of possibility that he would have done it. And it would have provoked a real crisis. Now, let's say Hillary Clinton wins the election anyway, which still seems, at least as of the polling data now, to be pretty likely. Uh, are there steps that anybody can take to uh, to censure Comey, uh, maybe not necessarily remove him from office, uh, but, with that, but, but censure him without it looking like some sort of political blowback? You know, I, I think the current situation at DOJ is untenable. Um, you can see it in that Wall Street Journal story you mentioned where you had um, FBI agents leaking about the Department of Justice. You had FBI agents leaking about their superiors. You had people at the Department of Justice leaking about the FBI. 
you know, there's this this you know old saying that the fish rots from the head, and when you see the director of the FBI, you know, violating some of long longstanding rules and precedents, making clear he doesn't care what the AG thinks, you can understand why people down the line would say, well, I can thumb my nose at, at DOJ as well. That's that's not a tenable situation. Uh, I think you know a, one of a few things has to happen. One is that Jim Comey learns a lesson from this. Um, that he, you know, I, I can't imagine he expected the blowback he was going to get, mm. not just from Democrats, but from Republicans. A lot of Republican officials, former officials, who just cannot believe what he did. Um, maybe he learns a lesson and is more, you know, more accountable to the rules and more accountable to the Attorney General in the future. The second is that when Hillary Clinton takes office, um, a new Attorney General. Um, you know, is able to work out a new understanding with him, either because he's learned a little bit or because this new attorney general just isn't going to put up with mm-hmm. what, what, he, what he does. Um, and the third is that he leaves. And, you know, I think one of those three things has to one of those three things has to happen uh, because the situation as it stands right now, just it's an impossible situation for the Department of Justice. And a lot of that, too, is because of the situation with Loretta Lynch and, the you know, her being in the tarmac with with Bill Clinton in that meeting. I mean, she's just in a very awkward political position where she especially can't really be seen as cracking down or reining right. in her director. So, I mean, today, you know, from what I've been told today that, you know, they had a discussion um, yesterday, I guess, after a national security meeting, um, the attorney general and the FBI director and, you know, she asked him how he was and said, you know, from what we've, we hear, she, he continues to have her full support. So, you know, I, I think that it's just a very <laughs> tough situation that she can't be seen as. Yeah. Like, like many yeah. stories with American politics, this one involves Bill Clinton doing something <laughs> incredibly stupid. Um, well, Matt Miller, thanks so much for joining us. Ryan Riley, as always, good to have you here and we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I just want to take the time to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. And I wanted to let you know that you can help us grow this podcast and grow the audience that you're a part of. Just go to iTunes and subscribe to So That Happened and leave a rating while you're there to let us know how we're doing. Doing so will help other people find us and allow this audience to grow and this podcast to flourish and become even better. So thanks very much for helping us out and for always being here for us. And we're back when we're back with more 2016 coverage on this, the last podcast of the 2016 election. Uh, Arthur Delaney still with us. Thank you. You are still with us. Yes. I I brought a brown paper bag to hyperventilate with. (laughs) Good, 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 good. That's what we're all about. And, and, um, here to, uh, help us maybe not hyperventilate. We have HuffPost pollsters, uh, Ariel Edwards Levy. I like to like Frenchify your name a little bit. Merci. Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> we are in the final stages of this election, and of Thank course, God. this week, um, the whole world—well, the the world of political media was like staring in rapt attention to a single Marquette University poll of Wisconsin. It was kind of like we we're all waiting for Santa to come. <laughs> um, what What is like? When you look out at the wide world as someone who's been steeped in this data and someone who whose job depends on getting your model correct and you see people like us freaking out, panicking, what do you what do you think about us? Do you think we're like weirdos? This is a very interesting and fraught time for people who are dealing with polls because on one hand there's this massive onslaught that we all would 
probably like to stop. But on the other hand, in a week, nobody will pay attention to me when I talk about survey methodology. <laughs> and that will last for another three years. <clears throat> um, I think the main thing that's frustrating is watching this sort of roller coaster ride where people will latch on to one result and just run with that. And then five minutes later, something completely different comes out. And that's especially the case right now, because there was a bunch of polling variation even a couple of weeks ago. But because that variation was based around Clinton being at like six or seven points up, even the lowest poll still had her ahead. Now she's maybe a point or two lower, which means that the variation is taking you from her being ahead to her being behind. And that's making everybody go crazy, apparently. So there are individual polls of, say, a state or a national survey, and then there are the polling aggregators. And there have been some famous ones like Nate Silver's at 538, and we have one. Me too. I like we're, to call it our HuffPost poll eating machine. And it has said that Hillary Clinton's likelihood of winning is above 98%. Yeah. It said that for the past week and a half. It has not veered from that even as people have been freaking out all week, tell us about why the HuffPost forecast model is so certain. So there's a couple of variations in the way that different forecasts work. And two of the big ones, that Nate Silver actually mentioned this and a bunch of other forecasters have written about the differences. The two sort of main variations are, one, how much instability you built in about uncertainty about whether the polls are going to be right, or not, things like that. The other is how quickly you react to new information. And so when you're saying 98%, basically all of the polls we have and everybody is looking at the same polling, it tells us that even if the race is closer now, Hillary Clinton is still ahead and she's still winning the state she needs to win. You know, at this point, there's no serious indication that she would lose like Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. So the 2% is sort of And it really depends on whether you think there's the possibility of a catastrophic polling error, because, of course, if the polls are wrong, then all the models that are based on those are going to be wrong. Now, and the model creates this forecast based on what's happening in the individual states. Yep. Like, we're not guessing here. It's this is where she's up and she's winning by so much in these states that her electoral college advantage is insurmountable. Exactly. And now the other difference between different models is how much you're reacting to new pieces of data, where some models will say, okay, here's this trend, we're going to move toward it. Others will say, okay, well, that could be an outlier. We're going to wait and see if there's more data. And until then, we're not going to spike very dramatically toward that result. And there was this really interesting study that was done a couple of uh, days ago by a firm, YouGov, which full disclosure, we partner with, which they actually looked at how the polls reacted after a couple of big events or what you would think would be big events this cycle. Second and third debates, the uh, Trump tape, the FBI announcement. And what they found was that those did not change who people wanted to support at all. What it did change was how many people wanted to respond to the poll at that moment. Oh, so, so it's like with some of these polls showing the race getting tighter... It could just reflect Clinton supporters being less excited to talk to a pollster yeah. because she had a bad week with the FBI. Yeah. The obnoxious technical term for this is non-response bias. And what it means is that maybe Hillary Clinton was never really as high up as a lot of polls had her. Like maybe she was never really 14 or 15 points ahead. Now, on the other hand, right now she might not have crashed quite as much as people think because, you know, people 
YouGov is a panel, which is the reason we can measure this. You can see who's not responding, whereas you don't know who doesn't pick up the phone. I see. In other words, you're following people over the course yeah. of time. And what it is is, you know, people may just not really feel like answering a poll when all the news is against them, but a lot of them are still going to vote. I want to ask about the the volatility that's added when you have um, a couple of um, outlier candidates still in the race and still <clears throat> doing comparatively well to other third, fourth and I guess in the case of Evan McMullen, we have like a fifth party candidate just sort of really just running in, in Utah. Yeah. Um, does that add any kind of really degree of in- uncertainty or instability to these models? It definitely does. And I think pollsters this year have really scrambled to figure out what the hell to do with these third party candidates because there was an interesting study done in the midterms. And what it found was that if you put a third party candidate's name on the ballot, on sorry, on your questionnaire, mm-hmm. you're going to end up overstating how much support that person has. If you don't put that person's name on the questionnaire, you end up understating how much support that person has. Shoot. So one, one of the things that we do know is that supporters of third-party candidates are less sure of their choice. Mm-hmm. They're less sure that they're going to be voting. And in the case of people like Gary Johnson, we've actually seen his support drop three points on our charts from the beginning of October. So there's sort of a lessening of that. But it definitely, anytime you're adding extra factors, that makes more possibility that things go a little awry. You know, I had really wondered about that because the third party candidates are in the race. So why wouldn't they be included in the polls? And the reason is that they they cause statistical problems. Yeah. And I mean, especially with this race where you have two candidates who are very unpopular. And I should say that the candidates are not unpopular to everybody. Most people like at least one of the candidates. But for people who don't, it can be sort of tempting to have a third party option with there is no name more generic than Gary Johnson, except for maybe Evan McMullen. <laughs> so, the, um, so we were quipping about the Marquette University poll earlier, and my understanding is that is you know typically thought of as a gold standard style poll, and the polls that will close out this contest on the final days will probably be a range of polls that uh, come from really, really trustworthy sources. Um, But do we have any kind of situation where we have like a lot of noise in the polling? Because it seems to me that there's been a little bit of a spike in like the off-brand pollsters jumping into the race and making claims. Yeah. And Marquette is a great pollster. And I think one of the things you see is that there is a weird combination of people who've been doing this for a very long time, are methodologically rigorous, really know what they're talking about, and a lot of people who are just sort of doing this because it looks good to have a poll out that has your name on it. And in between, you have, you know, a bunch of people who are trying out new things, which is not a bad thing. And honestly, in some ways, it's a good thing to see some variation because, the alternative to that is pollsters second-guessing themselves if something doesn't look like everyone else, which is not a healthy thing for the field. And that's why, in general, the best thing to do is to not discount any individual poll, but just look at where it is compared to everything else and sort of take it in that perspective. So right now, as Arthur mentioned, the HuffPost pollster model has, I think, given Donald Trump something like a 1.6 or 1.8 chance of winning, which, by the way, is a chance of winning. I mean, of billions of people on this planet, Donald Trump is the second best chance of becoming president. That's pretty good. I mean, (laughs) y'all listening out there have, like, less than that. So just keep that in mind. The model is saying there's a chance. Um, There's... uh, This is a time of peak bedwetting, and it's also a time where people, like, sometimes... 
start to talk about pollsters being the sort of comfort blanket for for uh, for liberal Democrats in this kind of situation. I know that your job depends on you getting these things right. That it's not you you're not out there gallivanting around trying to make people feel good because you want to, but. At this juncture, how confident are you in this, uh, what you have? Um, I think, in general, one of the things that I found really baffling this year is people talking about the polls being skewed, because every pollster has such an incentive to get it right. Nobody wants to get it wrong. Campaign pollsters want need their clients. Media pollsters need their credibility. Everybody is trying to come up with the right answer. And the amount of variation that you see tells you that this is a bit of an art as well as a science. Sure. I'm pretty confident in what the polls say overall, which is that Hillary Clinton has a very strong lead and is will be shocking if she does not win. I'm confident in that. That being said, there are a lot of states that look a little bit close. There's a lot of Senate races that look very close. I'm not confident that every single one of those we're going to know going in what happened there. And if there's any sort of late movement, that's one of the most difficult things for pollsters to deal with. You know, normally you want to wait a couple of days to see how things shake out. When there's five days left, that's not really a possibility anymore. Right. Well, if you're out there and you're looking to s- something to soothe your ragged mind, let me recommend whiskey, not pollsters. Um, um, because whiskey doesn't have an important career job to do in its life. It just is there to take you down off the ledge. Or if you want to get mad, I recommend getting mad at the weather, which I blame on the weatherman. Yes, you you really do take it out on the weatherman constantly. See, I think the fact that it's very warm here is one of the few concessions this year has made to not being terrible. Oh, yeah, you're from so California. Yes. Yeah, okay. Fine. But uh, I can agree with whiskey, and I think that's something that our country can come together on. All right. So whiskey 2020. Uh, whiskey and... Whiskey uh, and rye. Yeah. Yeah. There. There you go. Just those things. All right. Ariel, thank you for joining us. Uh, I look forward to... Uh, I guess never having you back on the podcast uh, for well, another three years, right? <laughs> Sorry, this, this is great. We'll about see. a week from now, I'm going to be like, does anybody want to talk about probability sampling? And everyone's just going to be like, no. Yeah, we'll see you toward the end of President Clinton's first term. Right, yeah, okay. All right, uh, we will be right back. Good chatting with you. And we're back, and we're back with uh, Zach Carter. Hi, everybody. So um, everyone has probably got a beloved cop in their life, if not in their life from a family member, but in the life because of culture. I was uh, doing sort of a back-of-the-envelope look at the new book, TV, the book, by Matt Zoller Seitz and uh, Alan Sippenwall, where they write the top 100 television shows of all time, 23 of them are based on cops and law enforcement. It's been a part of our culture for a long time, and we're very glad to have with us to talk about this from the Washington Post, Alyssa Rosenberg, who is out with a five-part series on the intersection between police and popular culture and the weird symbiosis between them. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been, it was really a great read, reading this five-part series. I sort of like digested it in big gulps. And my first big takeaway from it is that the symbiosis we're talking about between 
actual real world police and the people who tell their stories on TV and movies, they've been sort of drawn together. Really kind of just the incentive is just to tell good stories, accurate stories, and perhaps stories that that people can relate to. It's a weird relationship. What? How would you characterize the basis of this relationship between the people who make our pop culture and actual real world police. So the symbiosis that you're talking about took a while to develop. In the early years of the movie industry, the relationship between the police and Hollywood was fairly coercive. Law enforcement agencies saw regulating movies as an essential crime fighting function. There were actual regulations about the extent to which you could show suicides, murder by poison, uh, safe cracking, train robberies. There was a sense that if the movies depicted this stuff in too much detail, that it would inspire and inform criminals. So the mayor of New York City, George McClellan, actually shut down all of the city's movie theaters in 1908 on the grounds that they were preventing, they were promoting <laughs> crime and vice. Um, if you read old LAPD annual reports, which I do because I'm a crazy person, you <laughs> will read the reports from their motion picture censorship division, which basically involved a bunch of cops getting together on, I think it was Tuesdays, and watching movies and deciding what would inform the criminals of Los Angeles and what was okay to screen. So it was initially this very coercive relationship, and in the late 40s, early 1950s, William Parker, who becomes chief of the LAPD, recognizes that there's sort of a smarter way to do this. And he ends up teaming up with this actor named Jack Webb, who had worked with um, an LAPD cop on a movie that he was shooting and thought, hey, why don't we tell stories from the actual LAPD case files? And so they sort of teamed up. Webb created this radio show and then TV show called Dragnet that was drawn from actual LAPD cases that used LAPD um, officers as technical advisors and submitted all of his scripts for approval to the LAPD. Mm. So initially you had this, you know, you had this sort of um, coercive relationship that turns into a collaborative but still sort of censorious one. And then in the 60s and 70s, you start to see individual cops who either tell their own stories, like Joseph Wambaugh did in novels like The New Centurion and The Blue Knight and his TV show Police Story, or who are sort of hired as inspirations for TV shows. When Aaron Spelling creates The Mod Squad, he buys the idea for the show from a former um, L.A. County Sheriff's Department officer. Um, you start having cops like Dave Tashi from the San Francisco PD, who's the inspiration for both Bullet and Dirty Harry. Mm. Um, and then you start to get people like Ed Burns, who was initially a source for David Simon when he was reporting homicide right. and his collaborator on The Corner. And then also people like Bill Clark, who David Milch hires to work on NYPD Blue, who become sort of on technical consultants, who are kind of the spiritual advisors to these shows. Um, so it's a it's an evolving relationship. It's a really complicated one. If you look at reality TV it's that's a genre where office, where departments have been able to sort of reassert that authority over what people get to see. Because if you're doing a ride along on cops, mm -hmm. you know, you're not there on the entertainment industry and coming up with your own ideas about what's happening. You're essentially just filming and broadcasting what departments want you to see. Right. Um, so it's a it's a constantly evolving a relationship. It's a really interesting one. Um, 
But I think the police and the entertainment industry are sort of in mutual thrall to each other. And that's produced some great storytelling, but it's also perpetuated a lot of myths about police work. Now, in your piece, you do, however, cite some sort of counterexamples to this. It's, it's not like it's always been just cops being lionized by the police. Uh, in particular, um, you, you open up with a uh, discussion of some silent film stuff. It yes. stars Buster Keaton, uh, Charlie Chaplin. Um, is this really a Hollywood problem or is this just a talkie problem? Um, I mean, I think that part of what you're seeing in the early silent uh, silence is a more independent viewpoint. And that was actually something that police organizations reacted against. The International Association of Chiefs of Police actually issues a resolution in 1910 condemning the depiction of cops in the movies. Um, Keaton, his short films about cops were definitely sort of more independent um, and in fact, very critical um, cops, which um, is a story in which he is actually his character is actually lynched by the police, uh, comes out during Fatty Arbuckle's um, rape and murder trials, which mm. were generally sort of assumed to be frame ups. This was in the 1920s. And so clearly Hollywood has a certain amount of space to react against the police. Um, but something really important happens in 1915. The Supreme Court rules that movies aren't protected by the First Amendment on the grounds that they are sort of recapitulations of things that actually happened or other people's independent ideas. And so in, under those circumstances, the prospect of extensive you know, federally or state-mandated censorship becomes very real. And Hollywood makes sort of a strategic decision about – you know, what essentially what to give away. And so you have people who are making short films, you have people who are making films outside the auspices of the Hayes Code who are able to be more independent. But when for 37 years a major industry doesn't have the protection of the First Amendment, it's going to have to make strategic calculations. So the, the, the sort of relationship between uh, the entertainment industry and police, it's obviously altered the way the laws have affected the entertainment industry. But you also make the case in your series about how just the nature of this relationship and the storytelling that has been told about cops, it's actually had an impact on police policy as well. Um, it's sort of we've, we've sort of shaped in the public consciousness this idea of what what cops can and can't do, and that has impacted policy in ways. Sure. I mean, one of the things that you see in storytelling from the late 60s and early 70s is a lot of backlash against specifically the Warren Court's decisions and broader um, concern for suspects' rights. So that's people think of Dirty Harry as a movie that's just about shootings, but it's also a movie about a cop who feels that sort of civilian sympathy for suspects is being abused. Um, the killer that he tracks in Dirty Harry actually hires a black man to beat him up and then claims that he was the subject of police brutality and gets released from jail the first time he's arrested and gets the charges dropped. I mean, you know, sort of the whole do I feel lucky is kind of the iconic thing yeah. that emerges from Dirty Harry. But it's a really angry, in some ways, ugly movie about sort of the expansions of suspects' rights. Um, I mean, in some cases, pop culture has actually changed the way that police practice worked. Aaron Spelling always claimed that after he made SWAT, the LAPD changed the way that it ran SWAT units. Previously, cops would carry around SWAT equipment, and if a SWAT call came in, they could radio back in and go SWAT effectively. Um, that didn't work for a TV show. He needed them all to be together. So he put the characters in a van. And apparently Daryl Gates said, oh, that makes sense. And <laughs> put together these SWAT vans. I mean, this is something Spelling claimed. Um, he may have been uh, overstating the case there. But 
Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting dynamic. Another place you see it that's not necessarily about policy, but more about sort of cultural influence is in recruitment ads for police departments. Um, and so the folks at the Police Executive Research Forum track recruitment ads really carefully. And they found some that are explicitly sell sort of violence and sirens and chases and, you know, hunting people down. Which is usually overstated in entertainment. You know, we usually overstate the the extent to which cops are shooting people. It's actually pretty rare that cops draw their weapon and shoot. Unbelievably rare. I mean, obviously, there are high profile incidents where cops kill people and those are incredibly important. But one of the sort of paradoxes of what. Hollywood has done around policing is that it presents shooting as so common that all cops are sort of expert marksmen who mm-hmm. never miss and who, you know, if if there's an accident, it's tragic and they feel really bad about it. But by presenting shooting as incredibly common, Hollywood suggests that it's a it's a much more common experience. It's one that cops are prepared for. Um, they have to deal with every day. It's just part of the job. Exactly. On a normal, normal Thursday. Or and so it creates expectations that, you know, if this is a normal part of the job, then people are ready to do it. They are emotionally prepared for it. And in fact, because police shootings are relatively rare, people are much more emotional. The decisions are not ones that they're making regularly. And so, I I mean, I heard from a lot of cops that I talked to for this series that that was one of the things that they were most frustrated by, that not that Hollywood was suggesting that cops are more violent than they are, but that they were suggesting that shooting was a more commonplace part of the job instead of something that is a tragedy and a big event for everybody. But that does create in, you know, in the mind of the public when these shootings actually happen, the idea that, oh, well, well, shootings are happening all the time. We're only looking at this one because it, it happened to work out badly. Actually, you know, this this probably happens. This guy probably shoots somebody, you know, every four or five days. You know? I'd actually I'd actually put it differently. I think that people look at the shootings that happen and think, well, cops are supposed to be professional and experienced and controlled. Why was this person acting out of what seemed like an overabundance of fear or hysteria? Mm-hmm. Why? Why did this person? Why did this happen? If all police shootings are supposed to be good or if most police shootings are supposed to be good. Why Why is this happening? Why is this happening the way it's happening? Can we talk about Die Hard? Oh, of course. All right, let's talk about Die Hard. Okay, so Die Hard is like, you know, I don't think it's a secret that it's like pretty conservative in its general ideology. But mm-hmm. you you brought up in your in your piece, you know, one of the, one of the cops in this movie admits to having shot a 13 year old kid. Right. And he just feels so bad about it. And you, you look at that now and you're like, man, that is that is a tough thing to that. It just seems very uncomfortable. But the movie has been popular and I don't think people have really talked about it for like, you know, 25 years. I adore Die Hard and it's hugely influential. One of the things that's really interesting is that if you look at other cop stories, Die Hard is probably the most cited cop movie. Um, It's the thing that other fictional cops look to as inspiration. And I love Die Hard. I'm not going to get into the debate over whether it's a Christmas movie, but um, <laughs> we've already rolled on that in yeah, a previous podcast. It is. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> but I think part of what's really interesting about the subplot with Al Powell is not that he feels that he shot a 13 year old, but that he feels too bad about it. He is too emotionally debilitated. And that's a real evolution from other stories about cops killing children. Um, There's a storyline like that in Starsky and Hutch where Starsky kills a 16-year-old and there, I mean, the argument there is that, yeah, he should feel really bad. You understand that he is a morally responsible and good person because he grieves, because he reaches out to the dead kid's mother, because he really wants to know that he didn't have a choice other than to shoot. Mm. Um, In Hill Street Blues, um, 
Officer Perez shoots a little boy playing with a toy gun in the fourth season, I believe. It's either the third or the fourth. It's the episode called Doris in Wonderland. And he attempts suicide by the end of the episode. And that's a tragedy, but the the episode presents that as, of course, it's, of course he is having, you know, maybe he's taking it slightly too far, but he's having a morally appropriate reaction mm-hmm. to, having killed a thir- to having killed a little boy. In Die Hard, the problem is that Powell is too emotionally debilitated. He cares too much about having killed a child. And so his arc is not about sort of trying to make right what he's done, but about him sort of getting his mojo back so he can shoot the people he's supposed to shoot. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. I w- want to just ask one last question, uh, because whenever when if, if you get to talking about cops and culture, eventually if you're like, what, what should I watch? And everyone, of course, cites the wire but what is something since you've probably been steeped in this what is there something that maybe is not as often respected or lauded as far as a tv entertainment or a movie that talks about the relationship cops that you think more people should watch is there something out there while missing i hear easy street cited a lot as something more people should have been watching i'm actually going to recommend a book i think everyone should read joseph wambaugh's the new centurions wambaugh's a really interesting figure he was a detective sergeant in the lapd he knew some of the guys who wrote and censored scripts for dragnet and adam 12 and he thought about writing for one of those shows but he was getting his ma in literature while he was on the force and he ended up deciding to write novels instead. And so he wrote this book that he knew wouldn't be approved by the LAPD's sort of internal review process. So he just published it. And he thought, okay, maybe my mom will read it. Um, I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But the Book of the Month Club picked it as its main selection for January 1971. And it was this huge sensation. And it's I don't understand why The New Centurions isn't sort of up there with The Great Gatsby and other sort of classics of American literature because it follows a class of LAPD recruits through the academy every August until the um, the Watts riots in 1965. And so you have these three cops who are dealing with questions about, you know, are they brave enough to use force, the state of their marriages. One of them is a Latino officer who sort of hopes that by going into the police department, he will be kind of deracinated and instead ends up assigned to a mostly Latino precinct and falling in love with a Mexican immigrant. And so it's this really beautiful look at, you know, sort of policing what the job does to you over time and what happens when you're tested by something like the Watts riots. And it's fantastic. That sounds awesome. All right. That was great. Thank you, Alyssa Rosenberg. People should go to the Washington Post and check out Alyssa's five-part series. It's stuff with great supplemental material materials. It's so exhaustive. And I have to say that I know that on Twitter, you've been talking about doing this project a lot. And, and you've cut, you you kind of called your shot like Babe Ruth that this is going to be something great, and you really delivered on it. Uh, it's huge and it's great, and I think that people are going to come away learning a lot that they didn't know before about this this relationship between the entertainment industry and cops. And Alyssa, for everybody who knows, she writes regularly at the Washington Post in the Act Four blog. She is always talking about the intersection of politics and pop culture, and it's a beautiful read always. So, Alyssa, we're very glad to have had you on today. Thank you so much for having me. Cool. And we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. 
I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by former Justice Department spokesperson Matt Miller, Washington Post columnist Alyssa Rosenberg, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Ariel Edwards-Levy, and Ryan Riley. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, please subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talking about, we are always ready to get an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. So thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to vote. We wish you all the best of luck. We'll see you on the other side of this thing. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.